Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Inside Track. How do we know the best choices to make? And when we look back over our lives, how do we know the choices that have most influenced us from who we have been to where we are today? Join me as my guests and I explore defining moments from there to here on the inside track. I'm Debbie Hazelton. Hello and welcome to another edition of On the Inside Track and my guest this month is someone that some of you have heard before on podcasts and programs, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Marilyn Volker. Marilyn is a sexologist and in my over, I don't know, 20 some odd years of knowing Marilyn, what I find is she is an advocate for people and teaches people, helps people to find more ways about relating with self and with others. It's really more about relationships. So I apologize in advance for the sound quality. We started to use Skype and I tried on two different occasions and just had a problem. So we went to my conference line and... I just will say that when you, if you have moments where you can't hear and understand, if you wait another moment, you will get the gist of what she is saying. Many definable moments, so I hope you will appreciate and enjoy along with me. Here we go, Dr. Marilyn Volker. This should be easier, and I think this will still sound fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's okay. It's, it's, at least it's another option. Yeah. It's like sex. It's like sex and relationships. <laughs> Plan B. Uh, there you go. I love it. Well, this show deals with defining moments from there to here. That's the subtitle. Defining moments from there to here. Yeah. So I would really love for some of the for listeners to get a sense of who is Marilyn Volker as a person and what are some of the defining moments that have brought you from wherever there was to where here is now? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> moments. It's called the marker events, you know, in people's lives and mm-hmm. defining moments. Okay, well, as a minister here, I think the defining moment that got me here were one that I took the purity of the message. So when my father would preach that was all people, all, I took that literally to mean not just white, heterosexual, cisgender uh, people who had no, uh, who were all able-bodied, and remember, I didn't know any of those words. I just, when he said all, it meant all. So when I really got to know people in the field of sexuality, that really was an extraordinary defining moment, even though I wasn't aware of it, I was scripted with it. When my parents 
I really took it to mean the defining part is your private parts are not nasty. Of course, I wasn't taught anything about it, but the but the really impactful thing was there's nothing nasty. Okay, now I need to learn something. And so what I did you learn? What was the mess? What was the message that you got that you took to mean that that isn't nasty? Well, that's what they said. There is nothing nasty on your body. They said God made you exactly all your parts. Now, they didn't talk about private parts because I didn't know how to talk about it. But I took it to mean, oh, and that means private parts are not nasty. Right. Even though I grew up in a very religious home, I got the messages, the defining messages that God loves all people, and there's nothing nasty about your body, which really helped me, even though I didn't really plan to be a sexologist, okay, is, but that helped me so much. You were saying that about the being in the religious environment, how that affected you for yes, later. I I was able to get the spiritual part about there's something beyond, all right, and that whatever the beyond that my parents called God, all right, and loves, loves and values. Actually, the operative word was value, which that is a defining word that I didn't realize until much later. The word was that God values all people. Loves and values. Now, values is a word way beyond tolerate, accept. Okay, that word value meant to me, you are so special. You are so valuable. You are treasured. And so... Amidst all those other, I'm going to say, uh, negative religious messages, I kind of latched on to those very defining words. Wow, you sure did. Yes, I don't, and I'm grateful, and I'm grateful, because there was a lot of mixed messages about, well, yes, if there's, if your body is not nasty, why don't we talk about it? Well, they didn't know how to talk about it. If God values people, how come our church looks so white? And I would ask these questions, which was very, very, I'm sure, challenging to my parents who were born in 1911 and never had a sexuality or anything, anything like that. But I just really took those words so that Another defining moment when I was 13 was when I saw a movie about Helen Keller. And I thought, boom, I want to be her teacher, Annie Sullivan. And from then on, I wanted to be like Annie Sullivan. And what was it about that? Mm -hmm. What was it about that? I wanted to know about people who experienced life different than I did. Uh, and, and 
I wanted to know, like I knew white, heterosexual, Lutheran, who, you know, uh, uh, could hear, could talk, could speak, they walked and they didn't, you know, they, they just, they didn't have, of course we all had challenges, but we never talked about it. But the defining moment of that was, I want to know other ways of learning and mm-hmm. of being. And that teacher, Annie Sullivan, and also Helen Keller, said to me, there are other ways. All right. So there's another, and I was about 13, and I never really wavered. I was like an arrow. I wanted to be a teacher for deaf and in special needs. I wanted to learn from them. It was not just me being like, you poor people, I'm going to help you. Never. It was, I want to know. If you have a brain that works differently, I want to know that. If you see the world in a different way, if you found a plan B, how can I know that? It was like a puzzle to me, always. That is so beautiful. Well, you know, I'm glad I was given that. I was, I'm, I'm certainly glad because, oh, I could have ended up oof, in many other ways. But that was really the, and the next defining moment was, oh, yeah, I was the arrow. I was determined I was going to teach, you know, deaf kids. And even though I was sent to a Lutheran school, you know, and a college that, you know, a Lutheran college that didn't have any special needs, I thought, you know, uh, education, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. And so I graduated from uh, Kent State University that had a deaf education special ed. And, of course, in my day, if you had a vagina, you married a minister. If you had a penis, you became a minister. So <laughs> that was the message. I mean, those were defining messages, too, mm-hmm. you know. So, okay, so I found this lovely guy at this Lutheran college, and we got married. And I was an overachiever, so I got married on the same day that I graduated from college with my four-year degree, so I figured I'd better show up um, at my marriage rather than my graduation, June 1968. So I got married and graduated on the same day. And so, wow. uh, I, well, I was one of those overachievers. And so... Then I'm teaching deaf kids. And so I think, this is great. I'm so, I am so excited. Well, here comes another defining moment. So my former husband, um, Roger, and I were in the seminary in St. Louis. Who comes to the seminary in St. Louis but the staff of Masters and Johnson's? It's the first year they ever came to this seminary. Because, of course, my father went to this seminary, my uncle, because remember, they all had penises. So, okay. So they became ministers. And here comes the first year, the staff of Masters and Johnsons. It's a defining moment. They are talking about human sexuality in a very scientific, research-oriented, and even talking about the beginning of using surrogates for people who, you know, were single or were virgins at 40 or or, or they were survivors of abuse of many kinds. 
And we are all like deer in the headlights. We are like mouth open, eyes wide, all of us going, OMG, we've never had this. And yet, I'm thinking, because my defining moment of that was I pulled on what I'd learned from Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan. Oh, it's a plan B. Oh, you get information, and then you see what's possible, plan B. Oh, well, that made sense. But I still wanted to teach that kids. Fine. Wonderful. So I come to Florida, and we have this fabulous church in an inner city, and we get involved in in Cesar Chavez uh, in terms of the migrant farm workers, and we get involved with getting the UM clinic to bring their medical students or people who couldn't go, you know, and needed medical care. And we started daycare, and we got very involved in in what is now known as LGBT issues. But but um, really, we only have that G and the L at that time in the game, So the interesting part of life is the next defining moment. I'm teaching a class of deaf children. I think, oh, I made it. I, this is the most humbling thing about defining moments, I think. You think I'm here. I'm here. I got it. This is it. And in walks a deaf boy named Lion. He's nine years old. And I have a class of about nine and ten students because in those days, we didn't have words like autism or spectrum. This is words like Everything exceptionality. If anybody had anything different, put them in Volker's class. And I loved it. I loved it because I learned how each student learns. And I told the students to bring me words because all words meant something. Here is the defining moment. All words what something? All words meant something. Meant something. So they would bring me, yeah, they all meant something. They have a vocabulary. They all meant and mm-hmm. so they would bring me words. Now, remember, this is before Google, before any technology. Okay, so they're bringing me words, and I'm explaining words, and if they're deaf, I'm finding it, I'm saying it. They're putting their words on the wall. I'm giving them stars and sign language and flowers and yay you, high fives, and, well, I think it was before the high fives, but before <laughs> fist bumps. It was all that. But... Here comes the defining moment wrapped up in a young boy who's nine years old, and his name is Brian. And he comes in and he runs in, and he has three words from bathroom walls. That is the defining moment. Mm-hmm. I Never really had a sexuality class, except learning about this research from the staff of Masters and Johnson's, okay? Never really had anything. No class in high school, no class in, in, in undergraduate, no class in Masters, none, none. And what happened was that I said to him, those words are nothing. Me, a teacher, me, said mm. those words are nothing. 
because I was scared. I didn't know. I wasn't prepared. And he sure. looked at me, this young, young, young soul, who's the defining moment right then, stands up to me. He's so mad. He, he finds and he gets right up to my face. Of course, he's smaller than I am, so he's looking up and I'm looking down. But and he finds liar you. And I'm like, oh. But it's true. I lied. Mm-hmm. In the final moment, mm-hmm. he said, in sign language, he said, you say all words mean something. Now what? And right there, I'm taken to the mat and the defining moment. And I didn't know what to do. So I said, no, no, nothing, it's nothing. But here is a lesson of that defining moment. Brian never brought me another word again. Oh. I... I know, I know. It's like, ah! I broke his trust. You w- you've wished you could see him again. Oh, well, well, the story's not over. Interestingly, oh. Oh. interestingly, I went home and thought, this is not right. You're a teacher. There has to be a way to teach this. You just haven't been trained. Like a lot of people haven't been trained about people who have these varying abilities. Mm-hmm. You need to be trained. That's how a former minister's kid, former minister's wife, who only wanted to teach deaf children and also children with varying abilities, became a sexologist Mm -hmm. because of a defining moment with a kid named Brian. Mm. That's how I got my doctorate. And the end of the story is when I made my doctoral video that starred um, eight deaf kids and it, oh, it was a, a huge, I never made a video and I had to get, you know, all kinds of investors and, and editors and directors and all kinds of people that I didn't know anything about. It took you what? I dedicate, I dedicate the whole thing to Brian. Oh, so there we are. And Brian, I find out where he is. Here, wait. I have to thank him. I did. I did. I did. Oh. Grown up. And he, well, he, he really, just, I don't know that he even remembered me. But I sure remembered him. Mm. Wow. was one of my defining moments. That is so incredible. You found a way to let him know? Well, because, you know, because by now we're on Internet and all yeah. of the, the, the video for deaf kids uh, was for teachers and facilitators and teenagers. It was signed. It was captioned. It was voice overlaid. And it went to schools for the deaf. And, of course, now everybody was on Internet. And all of a sudden... There was a Brian who called me back. Oh. Are you? Were you my teacher in? And it was indeed oh. Brian. Oh my God! I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. This is oh. like so amazing, and that's a defining moment that I can say to Brian, "I am sorry, I did lie. I let you down." I wasn't prepared that you were strong enough, brave enough, 
to advocate for yourself so that I went on. And because of you, I can now help so many others and learn from so many others. And I'm not afraid. Now, of course, I would say, I don't know. We'll find out. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say, no, it's not a word. But it's because of Brian, this defining moment embodied in this lovely nine-year-old deaf kid who's now an adult and married and has children. And, oh, so. oh, that no, is just, I know. I know. He called you. Well, he, e- he emailed. He emailed. Because yeah. uh-huh. he's a deaf guy. He emailed me along the way. But I think there were people who along the way helped because there were a lot of people at that deaf school and then they know who's this Brian and then, you know, it's a small world. Right. And so people, you know, began to look around and then it was amazing. Really, really amazing. I, because but I'm, yeah, I'm I remember. I'm grateful. And you also told me the story of the kids, deaf kids, one day when you got up from your chair and how they thought, you know, that you had, you had, had, you, <laughs> you had, had your period and they thought you were ill. <laughs> oh, Debbie, you and I have taught many, I have to say, to the audiences and the listeners. And the, um, first of all, I'm so grateful and honored to ever, ever teach with Debbie Hazleton because uh, uh, what a powerhouse. We, we are uh, alone and together uh, oh. in teaching, and, um, but, but teaching with you has been such an honor and a privilege, and uh, we've had wonderful, extraordinary uh, experiences. Mm. And one of those, so you, you'll remind me if I forget, but that is true. So there is a defining moment right there, is that I think any woman in the world has had some embarrassing situation around having a period. And so I was in a class. This was in Minnesota. And you know, my former husband, Roger, and I were on an intern year there. And I was teaching deaf children, and they were small. They were like five and six. And um, so I was, I'm sure it must have been in the summer wearing a white pants, and that's not such a good thing to do. But at any rate, I stood up, and I had started my period. So they saw red blood on my pants. And they were like, Oh, oh my God, oh my God. And and so they were signing sick, sick, hospital, sick. And I'm like, no, 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 fine, I'm fine. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't do the five- and six-year-old presentation right this second. Sick, die, hospital. So when they went home, they told their parents that I was sick and going to die, and there was blood. So... I really had to. I really had to be a very simple and told the parents. I had to tell the children just very simply that you know when, and I had to tell them it in sign language and with some very simple pictures that you know when you're small, here's your body, and when you're big, your body's 
change, like your moms and dads. And then there are things that happen. And one of them is that every month a woman has good blood, good blood coming out of the body, and it's okay. And it's okay. She's not sick. She's not dying. And they're looking at me, and I go, and when you grow up, you'll learn more about that. But you not die. They would like, you not die. You, you not sick. Nope, nope, fine, fine. So every, and because I said every month, I want to tell you those kids were like, every month they would come, you bleed now? You bleed now? Because <laughs> they, they knew January, February, March. <laughs> so it was, and it was a wonderful set of parents because I didn't go into too much, but I had to explain something. I had to. I can't just say fine because they had wonderful questions. So those were defining moments too. Children ask the most wonderful questions. Oh yes, that was a great story you remembered. I think it was one of the other things that helped you become determined to teach sexuality. Right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely for sure. And that you could like anything in life. Children are going to ask questions like, why is that woman so fat, pointing to a pregnant woman? And most people want to say, oh, she just ate a lot. Mm. But the answer is she has a baby growing inside of her. Right. Now, she also could eat a lot, that's for sure, but it's been asking about pregnancy. But then, of course, the very bright child because I was always an irascible, I love that word, irascible questioner. Always. Irascible? Irascible. Irascible is pain in the, can I say that on the radio? Pain in the, it's, it's like the determined questioner. And, and by the way, irascibility is a good quality when you are determined. Like when we started the first AIDS project and there were people who were not going to give up just because a doctor said, you get your life in order, you're going to die. And they decided, nope, I'm going to find out about this and how I can live. So those were irascible people. And I was the irascible questioner. I questioned it a lot. Amazing, because in your family where you grew up learning, no need to question some of those things. It's great that you kept on questioning. Well, yes. I wanted to know why. And there were a lot of why questions, and sometimes there were no answers. But because my father was a minister, we dealt with a lot of, there were a lot of people who came into our house. He had his office in the house. And I learned well, there was another defining, you know, uh, uh, message is I learned confidentiality very, very early because my people came in our house and we were not to ask questions. We were not to, because they had very personal things to talk with and we were not to tell other people in church that they saw my father or why did they come in. My mother said it's called confidentiality. So very early on, I learned that. So yeah. that was that was also very important for you know for my my job later on, and to also honor 
um, and not putting everything on Facebook. I'm just saying it for right now. Oh. But, you know, in those days, in those days, um, not, not just gossiping about people when they really wanted your, your confidentiality. Um, but I was a questioner. Oh, I had very, you know, like, why? Why do some children have Down syndrome? Why? Why do some people here in, in Lorain, Ohio, why do I get to have my own bedroom? And some kids, well, it was with my sister, but why? And why do some people all live in the same room? Because I would go with my father to house visits. Why? In those days, there was TB and, and tuberculosis, and people were in iron lungs. And he would take me. In those days, you can go in a hospital. You never had to show any type of identification. And, whoa, there's another defining moment. I can't, you're, you're helping me remember. My father was a chaplain. And he said, come on, Marilyn, we're going into the hospital. Don't be afraid. Well, I wasn't afraid. I was curious. Yeah. Why did people have spinal cord injuries? Why were people in this iron lungs? In those days, they were in this machine that helped their body breathe because they had tuberculosis because we didn't know how to deal with it at that time. And and I was like so amazed. They could write with their mouth and paint with their feet or their mouth. And I'm going like, whoa, I can't do this. So my father says, my daughter needs a job. Now, I'm 14 years old. And so maybe because he was a chaplain, I don't know, but. They assigned me a job that I got paid you know, a small amount of money. But here, a 14-year-old has a job in a hospital assisting an occupational therapist going into a psychiatric ward, a 14-year-old, and a PT ward, physical uh, disabilities and accidents and traumas. I worked out, so I was assisting with people at strokes and spinal cord injuries and the pediatrics. I learned some defining moments, oh my gosh, and this particular occupational therapist, I still remain friends with, and she's in her 80s, 80s, late 80s, and she just took me under her wing and said, I'm going to teach you things. I'm like, bring it on. I didn't say it like that, but I, mean, I was like, yes, I want to know. Yeah. So these were defining moments. Of people who were different than me. One, yeah, that's one of the things that I have always appreciated about you is that you are not really talking just about sex. I mean, in sexuality, you are really talking about aspects of people being people and how people relate to other people. You're talking much more about relationship skills, relationship building, and yes, you certainly know your subject well, but I've I've always been fascinated and I think that when you are with other people working, I see this that you are really helping people to learn that really making making sexuality better is really about embracing embracing a person or embracing people, embracing ourselves and all those things. Part of learning about these differences in people and the way they um, 
and the way they interact and the kinds of relationships would certainly include many types of intimacy, only one is sex, is that it challenges me. And I like that. Well, I don't always like it at the moment, but I like that to say this is an important defining learning experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I'm, I'm always, you know, when I step back, all right, what's the, what's the takeaway from each of these uh, defining moments and people who are teaching me about how they interact in a relationship? Um, I'm sitting on a doctoral committee right now, and one of the doctoral um, students who happens to be an Asian physician is doing her doctoral uh, dissertation on polyamory, uh, uh, people who have very caring, open relationships, different than an affair, which is secret, but very caring. And then there's all these aspects. And, and so if I didn't have all of these experiences of being humbled and let me see what this is about, let me ask questions, let me be respectful of people, that I could have never sat on this committee that says, I want to honor, and this is a huge contribution to our communities of people who live in secret. And there are people, people who have open relationships or doctors and nurses and are from all ethnicities and groups. And for God's sake, it was Moses in the New Testament or Abraham or whatever. There were Mormons or some Muslims who in their religion can have up to, you know, four wives or whatever. But, but I could have never done that if it wasn't for these defining moments in understanding relationships. And I ought to be forever, ever grateful, forever, ever grateful for all of you. You said that, um, you know, obviously growing up in a Lutheran household, very conservative, and I imagine you got a lot of messages about, you know, GLBT. It wasn't called that. But you said later on that you were working... Uh, when you were maybe in college, you were working with with groups of people, groups of kids, and it was before we had GLBT, but that it was, you know, you were there doing it, and you were really okay with everybody just being different. But I guess I'm wondering, did you have a gap to bridge between the messages you got and being out there in the world with with people? Well, it's it's very interesting because I always went back to that root. The bridge I had to cross was how do I deal with people who may think differently, who come from a culture, or who did not get the purity of that message, or who were afraid Probably that's the bridge that I gapped. See, because I think of another many defining messages. I mean, I, I, um, you know, uh, uh, here, here was another, and I just think, as I have to give credit to, 
people think like, oh, you did this. No, I did not do this by myself. It was just these, these incredible people who come in my life, life with these defining moments, and then there's a team of people when we work together. You're one of those people that I worked with, and I'm grateful. Like, when I came to Florida, and it was 1971, and there were... In, in the Dade County public school system, like there were in many school systems, if you had a vagina, you could not take, like, shop. Mm. Or you couldn't learn how your car operated. If you had a penis, you could not learn how to cook, or what we called in those days, home ec. Yeah? yeah. Home economics. And I always wanted to learn about it. If I'm going to drive a car, I want to know how my car works. Okay, sure. I, I, I don't necessarily I don't necessarily like to change the tire, but I want to know how to do it. What if I'm in a you know emergency? Okay, so what in those days at FIU, Florida International University, there was an institute on sexism, and they asked me to come in because we were then establishing what was now called later on Title IX in the school systems which said you do if it doesn't matter what you have between your legs, if you're interested in taking home ads or if you're interested in taking up, you can take it. I mean it's fight very hard as a whole group of people to say we really need to have that kind of equality. Now one of because I'm getting to your question, this was again the defining moment because we realized one of the fears is like, okay, if this person with a vagina learns how to change a tire, oh my gosh, she's going to become a lesbian. That's oh. the fear. I, yes, it was, it's amazing. And if this guy learns how to, you know, make eggs, he's going to become gay. Now, this may seem silly to a lot of listeners now who may, you know, listen to a lot of cooking and, and see a lot of chefs. Or if anybody's in the military, they have to learn to do everything. But it was a very big fear. And they said, Volker, your job is to go and see about gay and lesbian resources. And I go, okay. This is great. <laughs> I'm not gay. I got, I, I, I'm a straight woman. I should know about this. I should, if I'm a sex just I should know about this. Mm-hmm. So I go out, and I'm embraced by communities of people because I want to know. I, I want. So that was a defining moment, and that got us to do these conferences on developing a positive gay and lesbian identity. And here's another defining moment right here. So three boys come up. They're 14 years old. And because I was in some kind of newspaper article with other people, and they come up to me. I'm now at Miami Dade, and we have the Institute on Sexism. Now we have and Sexuality Institute on Sexism and Sexuality. Right. And these three boys come up, 14 years old, and they look at me and say, "We want a place to meet." Now my oldest son, who's now 45, was 14, and I look at them and I go, "Tell me." Well, we're gay boys. Okay, where do you meet now? And what they said, Debbie, a defining, like emblazoned in my brain. They said, well, the only places we can meet are bars, beaches, 
bathhouses, bookstores. Mm. And I, the inside mm. of me is ballistic. Because yeah. as a mother, as a teacher, as an educator, we're going, inappropriate. You have to have safe, safe, safe places to meet. So mm-hmm. I'm, I go, you are going to have a safe place here. I have no idea how this is going to happen. And I said, we, we are going to, I didn't even know who the we was, but we are going to work together. And I march right up to the president of Miami-Dade, it's Dr. Eduardo Pedrone, and I said, we have to have a safe place for young people to meet. That's unconscionable. And so we began the first gay and lesbian, and now, of course, it's called LGBT, and there were bisexual people, and there were transgender people, but in those days, we had this very limited vocabulary. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for you and everybody else. What was it like to go to your family or people who knew you before and had sort of old ideas of what they thought you were or should be and say, well, I've decided to become a sexologist? What was that like? You know, um, well, I was a irascible kid to begin with. <laughs> so I, I, they already knew I was a determined kid. I was not going to become just so I knew I wasn't going to become uh, you know the mama who stayed at home and it's not and I love I'm a mama and we have four kids between us uh, my husband and I uh, and and number 10 grandchildren so we have a lot a tribe we have a tribe here all right and many of our grandchildren are partners so um, that's the part that I, I was just determined that if God gave you your sexuality, then we should learn about it and talk about it. If God values all people, then we need to be talking about it and not pushing people off on the sidelines. If God loves all people, then why, why couldn't I date a Puerto Rican guy? Oh, that was it. That was one of my irascible questions to my parents. Because I really thought this this Puerto Rican guy in the ring of money was like hot. Well, I wouldn't even use the word hot when I was 14. But I had a feet. And so, why can't I do this? Well, he's not losing it. But God values him. And I was a really irascible kid. So by the time I get there of telling my parents... I was already married, and probably by that time, yeah, I had a child, and we were involved in many things. And when my parents would come to live with us in the winter, God bless them, because they met so many of oh, yeah. our, our friends and relatives, and I think we met them, and, and, and so there was a number of, of um, yeah. people that came around, and, and I wanted them to see Look, this is we. We make up who the world is. And so, um, and so here's another defining moment because, uh, my parents are struggling around the gay issues. And, and even though God values all people, okay, okay, so they're struggling. And so they asked me about this. And I said, well, I was talking, if somebody is really, 
uh, who they are. Would would you want your kids or your nephews or nieces to be honest? Yes, you should tell the truth. Well, what if they were afraid to tell the truth? They should still tell the truth. Well, if they told the truth, would you punish them? Well, I hope not. <laughs> well, what if they were gay? And what if they were gay? Because I'm this irascible kid. I'm like, my uh, what if they're gay and, and they're afraid? And what if they feel they have to get married and now they're lying to their, their partner and their family? All right? And then, oh, my gosh, now the family's going to feel lied to and, and, and um, you know, all kinds of feelings. That, um, and they said, no, probably they should tell the truth. Um, and they said, but we really don't know anybody in our family who's gay. Well, I have to say, because I've been talking to my family, two of my gay cousins came out to me, and they gave me permission when it was, and they were appropriate, when it's appropriate, and, and they happened to be Lutheran, white, religious guys, and I said, well, would you still love Cousin Tom and Cousin David? And they were stunned. And I said, because they trusted me to tell the truth. And these are very, they're very involved in their churches and very involved in, and um, both of them are gay men who all of our families have loved and respected and one is a dean and one teaches in sociology and one happened to be in a, what we now call polyamorous relationship. I mean, they're 70 years old like me or 60-some and and one was in a polyamorous relationship for 40 years, but we didn't mm. have that word. Right. 40 just, years, yeah. they were together, these three guys who really... We're just taking care of the world, and we're together, and everybody loved them. And it just wasn't talked about. So they were quiet for about a week. We didn't want to talk about it. They were in our house. And they really, my parents were very respectful about being in our house. And uh, then one day they came out and said, do you think they would talk to us? And I said, of course. You're the aunt and uncle. Of course they would. You've missed so much in knowing who they are because they've been afraid. Mm-hmm. And because you haven't, you know, you weren't taught. Not like, remember, remember, my parents have a back history, and so they just weren't, weren't taught about it. So then we began to bring around people so they could be open. My mm-hmm. parents learned a lot. Then I asked my father, who was a minister, Hey, did you ever take a sexuality class in seminary? No. Did you ever take a counseling class? No. Did you ever know people have sex problems in their relationships? Yes. How did you handle it? Well, we said to pray about it. Okay, Daddy. Yes. <laughs> Somebody had a irrational kid. I know, and I'm, a, I'm not against prayer, but if they have an eye problem or a heart problem, you would pray? And he said, yes, I see. I would send them to a heart doctor or eye doctor. Yes. That's why I became a sexologist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a team. There's a team along with a clergy person. I did not want to negate him. 
I remember one day hearing you present and you were just so animated and you were letting people know what options they had and you were just so passionate about safe sex and about ways for people to enjoy and be free and and all that. And I, I remember saying to probably to Des at the time or to somebody else, I probably said it more than once, I said, Marilyn grew up as a, uh, you know, as a religious kid and married to a, a minister, a father is a minister, married to a minister. And I said, you know, it's kind of like she became an evangelist in another way for sexuality, but really even more for, for people in a variety of ways, for people to be free. Yes, I see it as like an, when I was growing up, you're exactly right, the evangelist or the queen or the mission. Um, and, and of course, I was schooled in that. And, and you have to know these defining moments that you're talking, which is really amazing, because I think everybody has them. They may not always recognize them. And they could be positive or negative because at sure. three years old, my, at three years old, my father pushes me in front of a congregation and says, sing. I don't want to sing. I'm three. I, I, but, but, you know, he's big. I'm tall. I, I, I don't want to sing. You will sing. And sing good. Uh, so I sang. And I sang good. And so then, you're now going to be in the choir. I don't want to be in the choir. You will be an alto. I don't even know about being an alto. You're going to be good. Okay. So I learned alto. Okay, now you're going to direct the choir. I don't want to direct the choir. You are going to direct the I know the skills. That even though I felt it sometimes forced, I am glad for all these experiences. And I was able to tell my father later, I didn't like that you forced me to do that. However, I'm glad I learned these skills. Mm -hmm. And so there were many times I was put in these positions of amazement that I'm glad, I'm grateful for. But there are times I said no. These are called boundaries in relationships. Mm-hmm. Because my father said, you are now going to play the church organ. <laughs> I say I say organ because my mother goes, Marilyn, you as a sexologist have to define organ. And I go, Mama, it's, the, it's what you play. I thought she was very funny after mom. And I know I, I was very funny. And I, and I said no. I'm not going to, even though I could play the piano, I'm not going to do that. Because I finally found a limit, which I think everybody has to find, and there's a defining moment about saying, no, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll do this, but not this. And so there's a lot, and I encourage in relationships for people to have these defining boundaries. Right. I'll do this, but not that that could be in safer sex, that mm-hmm. could be in a relationship, it could be to your parents, it could be whatever it is, that those are also very, very, you know, defining moments. So, um, and everybody has them. I encourage all your listeners to look at their, I love your show, Debbie, because it Thank invites you. people to look at their defining moments. What mm-hmm. shapes you? What really? And so I 
feel very passionate about that. And I also know I cannot tell people who they are or what I can only ask those questions and, and for good out and find out. You're so good at that and giving people choices, empowering people. And, you know, I mean, really, I think more people who come to you find ways to heal their lives in a whole way, their relationships, their sense of self, and and probably even some physical things that might have contributed to what brought them to come to you in the first place. I think there that you are so holistic in what you do. And really, I mean, you you just are. It's it's whole life. How can somebody uh, you know, I mean, nobody can just pig out day in and day out on dessert without looking at the whole life of what do they need, you know? And yeah. you are you are such a holistic person in dealing with people as people in all different walks of life and lifestyles. You know, and there's there's when when you're talking about that, again I'm remembering all these defining things. My father would invite many people to dinner. And my poor mother had no idea who was gonna be invited to dinner for how many people, but somehow she managed to have that. Maybe I don't know that I could do that, but um, she had enough for everybody. I don't know. I guess it was like the loaves and fish in the Jesus story. I have no idea. But the interesting part of it was that I saw somebody, my father would invite straight people and the governor or (laughs) people who were in yeah, and that was how we, that was like kind of like, okay, come on. My, you know, my wife will have dinner. My poor mother, I don't know how she oh. it, but Okay. Yeah, okay. So it could have been somebody who was just out of a hospital or somebody who's the CEO of a big factory, you know, in our town. And I, mm-hmm. I sat around the table and I really learned a lot about the differences. And I'm sure it was was an affirmation of a lot of people. But I also want to tell you something else, now that you're saying this, because I remember defining moments. I wasn't, well, I was there, but I was a baby, but later on. I'm going to invite people to look at their family members and also look at, you know, positives, negatives, and what can be reframed into positive. My mother was a feminist in her own right. Now, a lot of people go, feminist? Now, feminist means equality for all. There are many men who are feminists. But she was for equality, and here's how it happened. When we had our, she gave up. She gave up. She had a beautiful voice, beautiful voice. And she gave up. She got a she got a whole thing from the Juilliard Voice. She was oh. in Cleveland. Grew up, ah. she, and it was a, I know it was a whole um, you know a, a scholarship free. They were not wealthy, um, but she gave it up to go to a little church in a farm in Illinois with my father, where you had outdoor plumbing, outdoor bathrooms, 
and you had to pump your water from. Okay, okay. She gave it all up. But when she went to that church, the men sat on one side and the women on the other. It was it was in German and English. Now, it wasn't Orthodox Jewish, and I know there are many people in, in, in some cultures where the men are on one side, and the, I've worked with many, many cultures, and I have to be very respectful. But my mother said, you know what? It's important that people sit where they want to sit. So Yay! She's younger, young. Well, she was in her 30s, so not as young as, as some of us when we got married. But, um, okay, but she was young, 30. But she just said, it's important that people sit where they want to sit when thinking, Yay, Mom, you go, Mom. That's a statement. And then yeah. Yeah. only men, only men were the church soloists. Mm-hmm. Only men in those days. And radio was a big thing. And uh, she said, if if God gives you a gift, because they're all it all framed. Remember, my family is framed in this religious message. If God gives you a gift, you need to um you need to be able to share it. So she said, women should be soloists. So she became the first woman soloist in that mm. farm church. And then when they moved to Texas, she became the first woman soloist on the religious station in Texas. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I must have gotten some genetic talk about defining. Maybe I got some great genetics, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, certainly a role model of influence there, and maybe you inspired her, too. Well, you know, it's very amazing because they always, really, and I, I, I was the person that said, you taught us. You taught us this. And so I think they really, really valued, um, and they saw that uh, that I was passionate, and I and I. Um, wanted to learn and, and wanted to uh, be a part of many, many communities, which we were in, in our church and our community. So um, it was very interesting, very interesting to see that also. I'm grateful for my background. I'm grateful for many, many people who, like you, meeting you and all of the wonderful people that I worked with along the way, that really, really inspires me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.